everybody. Welcome back to Conversing Labs. This is Reversing Labs podcast where we talk about threat intelligence, threat hunting, software assurance, and more. We're so happy to have you back. And we've got a great show for you today. With us in the studio, we have Roman Hussey of abuse.ch. Roman, welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. And joining us again is Hrdvoje Samardzik, uh, research, researcher, threat intelligence researcher here at Reversing Lab. Hrdvoje, welcome back, my friend. Hi, nice, nice to be here again. Great to have you back. So we're in the studio today um, talking about, uh, well, really actually talking to Roman, talking about uh, his project, abuse.ch. Um, and also talking about threat hunting and in particular the use of um, Yara rules, which are becoming you know, a really important tool for threat hunters uh, and investigators uh, to use within their environment to spot evidence of attacks and so on. So we're going to talk a lot about Yara rules. We're going to talk about a new project that Roman's standing up as if he doesn't have enough on his plate. Uh, Yara-ify. But before we do any of that, um, I wanted uh, each of you just to tell the audience a little bit uh, about yourselves. And Roman, let's start with uh, you. Um, tell us about yourself and and uh, the work that you do. Also, tell us a little bit about uh, abuse.ch. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So my name is Roman Hussi. Um, I'm a Swiss citizen and I launched uh, abuse.ch quite some time ago. Um, so it started as a as a non-profit spare time project in, I think it was 2008. Um, so years ago, when uh, cybersecurity was not that cool as it is today, uh, cybersecurity is a buzzword these days, right? So I was already in that um, field a um, long time ago. And um, yeah, actually, I actually uh, entered that field by accident some, somehow. Um, started to uh, looking at strange emails that I receive uh, in my personal inbox. And I noticed that uh, this is something that interests me. And uh, I quickly started to blog about it. And um, that's act that actually was the start of abuse.ch. So today it's much more than just a blog, as you probably know. I think we're going to talk about that later. And uh, as um, of, uh, of yet, it's uh, yeah, still a nonprofit project that I mainly run in my spare time. And actually what most people don't know it's, is that um, it's just me, myself and I. So um, after all these years, it's still a, a yeah, a one man shop, so to say. That comes with a handful of benefits, but also with a handful yeah disadvantages, so to say. Um, I'm free to do whatever I want. Um, that's pretty cool. So if I have a good idea, I can just get it done. Uh, but on the other side, um, uh, yeah, I still have uh, a full-time job, almost a full-time job um, that makes me very happy and I don't want to quit that, which means that I now have like this um, fight between abuse.ch and my spare, uh, that I run in my spare time and uh, my day job that makes me very happy. And I don't want to quit any of those, right? And that's, um, that's a circle of badness or I'm not sure how you're you want to you're juggling a lot say that but it's, yeah yeah so it's really like this uh, circle of nightmare and you're not getting out of it <laughs> when you think about how important abuse.ch is just within the you know threat intelligence and and infosec communities it's pretty amazing that it's been run as like a one person project it's amazing to me um, yeah and and i mean it's what most people don't see is the huge infrastructure that I have in place that needs mm -hmm. to be maintained. And then you have bug fixing and platforms mm -hmm. that you need to mm -hmm. improve or develop further. One of the most recent projects we're going to talk about it later. Uh, so that's all stuff that I do by myself. And um, traditionally, I, I'm not a developer, more than like a threat hunter. So that's just like stuff I do because it, someone needs to, be, needs to do it. And that's me. Um, but I'm actually more into like threat hunting. That's the stuff that uh, is interesting. And, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about have... today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hrdvoye, <laughs> uh, you're a threat researcher here at Reversing Labs. Tell tell the folks uh, watching a little bit about the work that you do. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, so I, I, I won't be, uh, I, I don't have to 
uh, have a lot of things to say like Roman because uh, he, he really is uh, amazing. I mean, the things he does, uh, I, I I don't believe him. It's it's only him behind the, the project. That's that's impossible. So don't believe him. Uh, but because here at Versing Labs, I do a portion of things he does. Uh, so I'm um, I'm currently le uh, leading a team of threat researchers. So we are actively uh, working on discovering new, new threats uh, that pose uh, you know some some kind of novel kind of attacks that that could. Uh, be undiscovered yet un still undis uh, undiscovered and uh, are using some kind of new tactics and techniques uh, and uh, with all of those insights we are uh, building like a, a threat intelligence pipeline uh, workflow that's uh, produ automatically producing uh, intelligence that we you know as an evil vendor we try to sell to whoever is uh, interested that's what i do at the moment and you're 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 deep in the weeds on on um you know helping helping threat hunters and and uh and folks who are doing that within organization as well that's uh, that's a lot of the work that you do is is providing the tools and information to help them do their jobs yeah in a way roman and i do pretty much the same thing you know it's uh, building uh uh, a pipeline a workflow process of you know machines that automatically can process a number of uh, file related threats but also you know pick the networking uh, information and you know correlate all the things and ma make some meaningful uh, intelligence out of that so it's a uh, kind of a bit different perspective but I, I have a team that it's working. Uh, that on a on a bit larger scale, but still, it, it's a team. It, it's not a one-man shop. So let's start um, the discussion, Roman. Uh, just talking a little bit about uh, Abuse CH. This is a um, project that you do in concert with the um, uh, Bern University uh, there in Switzerland. Talk just a little bit uh, about you know for folks who might be watching but aren't familiar with abuse.ch, what types of information and resources uh, are available and, and how they're used by downstream, uh, whether it's uh, individual companies or cybersecurity firms, um, you know, uh, how they use the information you provide. Sure. Yeah, so um, the idea of abuse.ch is um, having an umbrella them over different kind of sub-projects or however you want to call them. So uh, the sub-projects are um, platforms that I offer to the community for free. So uh, most of the platforms I offer operate are open to the public. There are only a very few ones that I, I use for my my own purpose. Um, but most yeah, mo most of them, they're they are, um, open. And they all have um, some sort of different approaches or different um, goals they want to achieve so um but i think the, the 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 general term is that i want to provide um accurate information about um cyber threats um in near time to the community but also to um uh, stakeholders in the internet who actually can do something so for example uh, internet service providers um or uh, domain registries, domain uh, registrars, um, I can, uh, for example, but also for hosting providers that make and shut down uh, a website that is distributing malware, for example. Um, so the the audience is actually pretty big, and um, it, it it doesn't stop with the industry. It uh, I also work together with law enforcement agencies around the world, uh, providing them with information, uh, usually historical information about threats. Uh, cyber threats, and that's something um, that is useful for them, um, either in their investigation that is ongoing, or if they finally um, caught the cyber criminal, um, yeah, uh, collecting more evidence and maybe also some sort of like um, uh, expert opinion, you know, um, that's uh, usually useful for them. And having, um, yeah, a dedicated project like Abuse of CH that is not for profit. Um, that's uh, that's usually pretty cool to have uh, that data available um, for law enforcement agencies um, and so on. 
And you said you started it basically out of out of curiosity about about stuff that you were yeah. you were seeing in your own inbox. Exactly. So uh, back back then, it it was actually just a, a blog that I published uh, where I blogged about mail spam campaign, and that's uh, frank, frankly that's the, really the strange thing. We still have mail spam campaigns today, so within fifteen years, the problem was not solved. <laughs> Don't uh, take it personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, may, maybe I should have worked harder. I don't know. Yeah. So um, actually, uh, these mouse spam campaigns, I started to blog about them, and I soon started the first platform. Then, and it was Zeus Tracker. I'm not sure if you have heard about that. Back then, Zeus was this kind of, I think, one of the very first Crimer kits that was sold on the dark web and uh, yeah. on underground forums. Um, and I actually uh, decided to, yeah, or, or I, I saw the need of having a platform that tracks um, command control servers associated with Zeus and. I think that spirit, I still have that spirit today, right? Uh, the platforms that I generate or that I develop and publish, uh, they actually come out of a need that I see uh, in the community, right? Um, uh, for example, URL house uh, with tracking malware sites. I think there is, um, hello. Uh, I think there is not, um, not a similar project out there that tracks malware um, distribution F sites. Photobomb, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, and uh, that's that's actually how these projects um, start. Usually I'm in the shower or sleeping or I want to go to bed and I cannot sleep. And then suddenly I have this idea, like, that's a problem we need to address. And uh, when I have enough time, then I'm building, um, yeah, platforms. Could, could you give us a, I mean, you talked about the Zeus, you know, that kind of brings you back, but I mean, um, um, the problem hasn't gone away that you created abuse.ch uh, to address, um, but it has changed. So can you just talk a little bit about some of the changes that you've seen just in the, um, you know, in the, in the cybercrime um, world in terms of methodologies and so on, just from the, again, from your perspective there? Yeah, I, th I, th I think um, the whole... Um cyber threat landscape, I mean, it's obvious it, it evolved pretty much. And I actually remember when I started with abuse.ch, you had few actors, a few threats, um, and you could be an expert on all these kind of threats and actors because it was overseeable. But these days um, I'm waking up in the morning and checking all the Slack and Mattermost channels on Twitter. And it's just like, a really an, an information Overland. bomb yeah. uh, hitting you every morning, every morning. And uh, that's actually something that sometimes overwhelms me. And I was very lucky in the past uh, when I had like had this overview of what happens worldwide. And these days it's not possible. It's not possible anymore. And that's something that, yeah, it's also somehow frustrating, right? Because you, you want to know stuff and then a friend of you may approach you like, hey, have you heard about that? Can you tell me something about this threat actor or this this specific threat? And you say, yeah, I read about it in the news. I didn't have time to look at it at all. Because, yeah, this knowing about everything, it's not possible anymore. And I think that's, um, for me personally, an issue. Um, uh, and it also makes it a little bit more harder to, f yeah, fight stuff, right? Um, for example, a business email compromise. I mean, I don't have any platform or product that would heal, uh, help uh, the audience or the community helping with business email compromise. Uh, so that's just one example out of many. And it's very hard mm -hmm. to then actually yeah, figure out how, which, which threats are really, um, how do you say, um, emerging and really a threat to um, some organizations may, may would may say like national security or whatever, like Emotet and Qbot and Iced ID. Yeah. Um, and I, I, th I think that changed pretty much. And also what changed pretty much is like the um, cyber criminals organizing themselves much more and they have um, more resources. Uh, it's much more easier these days um, to get technical infrastructure that you need to operate uh, or to, to launch. Um, um, a, a mass bomb campaign, for example, or, or, or a cybercrime uh, campaign, all this infrastructure got, got much cheaper uh, than it was 15 years ago. And with one mouse click, you can deploy thousands of virtual machines in a cloud environment and having them spamming for five minutes, for example. 
um, or doing other nasty, nasty stuff. It's it's so easy these days and so so cheap. You're also seeing co- consolidation of the of the victims in essence on on shared infrastructure as well, right? So exactly, so, you know, right? Ex- ex- exactly. I mean, from a defender point of view, that also makes it more difficult than it was in the past. I mean, 15 years ago, I could provide an IP address like, okay, this particular IP address is a serious public command control server. But these days with all this cloud infrastructure, I mean, cloud is something pretty cool, but it also has disadvantages. Um, If I provide you an IP address, that IP address can change the ownership 15 or 20 or I don't know, times a day. And um, so for me, that means that if I provide an indicator of compromise, for example, or uh, threat intel about an IP address, um, the lifespan of that information snippet is much smaller than it was. And that's something that is challenging, right? How how long is an indicator valid, for example? And that was easier uh, 15 years ago. Hervoye, for like uh, organizations like Reversing Labs who are in, engaged in in you know synthesizing information, like what is what is a, a resource like Abuse CH? What's the value of it? It's like for all the vendors, it's a very very good uh, resource of of information because uh, I, I would say there's a really a handful of top notch researchers uploading their files, and these files are like uh, manually uh, tagged uh, so I, I would i would say uh, classified per per th- threat per uh, i would say vector and, and so on so it's really it's not a big uh, big uh, data set i would say uh, some may argue but uh, uh, it's really very well classified and you have a lot of uh, additional metadata on that data set it's very nicely um, correlated with other indicators so uh, it's really uh, something you would use for threat hunting uh, and one, one additional thing is it's uh, very false positive uh, free so almost everything i mean there's always cases when somebody uploads something suspicious that turns out not to be malicious but in, in general, it's very highly vetted malicious sample set. So that's why it's so interesting. And uh, I mean, we, we'll, be, we'll be talking about URI-FI later, but that's why this is so, so important to have something like that. Something that's highly yeah. vetted, it's organized, cataloged, cataloged, cataloged yeah. with a lot of metadata yeah. that you can use to, to hunt on. And I think uh, we can say size doesn't matter. That's something that, that I learned in terms of malware it's, sample feeds. It's the because quality. You may get, it's the quality. Yeah, you may get 200K malware samples a day. And what I learned is looking at them like 50% of file factors that are file factors that are 10 and more years old that are no longer relevant, but they are still out there because they infect new yeah, files. And so I think, yeah, talking about uh, who has what amount of data is, yeah. I think quality comes over quantity Definitely, in terms of yeah. my sample, but that's my limited view as a um, researcher um, doing stuff in my spare time. I'm sure vendors may have a different um, view on that. Uh, that's that's experience I have made. Especially these days, right? With so, so much threat data out there, right? There is this kind of quality versus quantity, you know, trade-off where, yeah, you yeah. might be getting uh, high high volume of data, but very low fidelity. Yeah, that that, that is. I I would agree, and I mean from from our standpoint, I can back what Roman has said. You know, the, the volume uh, there is a big big I would say overlap be, uh, between certain threats and files. So uh, when we do our analysis or when we create our feeds, we just take portions of files per threat because. If you analyze like, I don't know, 100 or 100,000 of samples per that threat, you'll, you'll get no more fresh indicators than from that 100. So it's really about knowing what the, that 100 is than about analyzing the whole data set because it's more or less iteration of the same thing. So numbers are, uh, you know, not that important uh, 
but uh, quality, quality is way, way, way more important. You actually talk about Emotet hash busting, <laughs> right? For instance, it's not only Emotet. It's not only Emotet. They're like, I mean, these guys, they, they Ex don't write. Explain that for the audience, Herdvoye. They, they will not like write a new malware sample every day for 100,000 times. They'll just repackage that in a different form to get a different hash. So it's basically the same thing. So all you need yeah. to do is find that unique sample and analyze it once thoroughly and you're done. So you don't need to touch on another sample for that day. But sure. uh, it's a process. And they're, they're doing that to... to, to you know, full signature-based detection uh, tool. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, the, the value of hash from the, the, the time Roman started, the hash was like, you block a hash, you're pretty, you're, more or less done. safe. Yeah, but job they, done. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, if you, like, uh, download a sample from the same uh, download uh, payload uh, location, you'll get a different uh, hash every single time. So they, they rotate these uh, payloads on every single download. So the hash is mm -hmm. uh, meaningless. You know, it's just a point of reference. Hey, I have this file. Do you, have you seen it or not? But other than that, uh, it's really not of much use. And Roman, you were saying uh, for the last 15 years, uh, Abuse.ch has been a, a passion project and uh, obviously not for profit, um, but that there are some changes coming in the near future. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so running the, the project has, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but I mentioned that earlier, if you have a day job, it's hard, right? It's really hard. And when I started it, you had servers rented somewhere in the data center and that was it and these days the infrastructure is huge um, the amount of data coming in and that i'm processing is huge um, the amount of um, users is huge i mean if i look at the apis and feeds i'm, I'm offering uh, yeah some of these apis are getting hammered pretty hard um, and yeah maintaining that infrastructure and developing new tools new platforms doing bug, bug fixes uh, implementing new features. There are many feature requests coming in on uh, Twitter DM. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, right? And um, during COVID, it was very challenging for me because of, yeah, also because of my, my day job. And um, I'm not getting any younger, I'm getting older. And uh, that means that I, um, yeah, had to look for um, an alternative that is, um, that that will survive me or yeah. that will allow me to survive however you want to see it um and uh, yeah so the idea um is um as of first of august the project turned into a commercial company so um abuse ch after 15 years sadly um stopped to be a non-profit project and is now a commercial company the idea behind is not to make um, money primarily it's more having um, enough funds to um, having something someone or yeah more probably than someone uh, have, having engineers and um, data scientists looking at the data engineering the platforms um, but also maintaining the platforms right mm -hmm. and with the, the research project I had within the past one and a half years at the Bern University of Applied Sciences, that was that was pretty cool. And I think um, it would have worked without day job. But with day job, I mean, I managed to get enough funds to hire someone, but you need to find that person. And uh, yeah, it's just me, so I have to hunt for that person. And uh, you need to engage with the person, getting him or her used to this huge infrastructure that actually has grown over time um, using different technologies. I mean, there are some Perl scripts that still are lying or, or around and um, it's a huge mess, right? And um, I didn't see myself in the position to do that. So yeah. um, I think, um, yeah, I need, to, there was a need for a change. Also, I think many, of my colleagues who run stuff for non-profit doesn't necessarily have to be in the cybersecurity field. Uh, I mean, they know what I'm talking about when um, approaching potential donators or spon sponsors. It's, it turned out to be 
that it turned out that in the cybersecurity field, there is a lot of money. That's fact. Uh, but yeah. if you um, are asking someone for a donation, it's very hard. Usually not because they don't want to. Usually uh, more uh, in the way that uh, they have an accounting apartment or something that says, well, we cannot just send money to someone. Um, we need to get something back. And um, even if the accounting department says, well, yeah, you're good to go, uh, you may have a line manager or someone higher up in the management that says, why should we spend 40K to that small one-man show project in in Switzerland. And then you need to start to argue like, yeah, well, we give you the data for free so that you can protect your customers, but we need money to operate. And um, the experience I have made is that it's very hard and you need to fill out hundreds of thousands of different forms to yeah. Yeah, become a supplier or however you want to call it. And yeah, I said, I just, just, in my just licensing time. it commercially is much more straightforward for them. Cause they're like, okay, it's well, pretty, yeah. I mean, I yeah. can just send an invoice or yeah. do a small contract and I'm happy, but with donation right. and does VAT apply or not? The handless yeah. discussions. It's, um, yeah, yeah it's, um, tricky. It's, it's, it's the work that doesn't rock. Right. Yeah. But yeah. that needs to be done. And I think it's much more, it will be hopefully much more easier with a commercial company just sending invoices and you get something back for it, hopefully. Um, anything that the folks using abuse.ch need to know and, and during this transition from uh, from nonprofit to, uh, you know, commercially licensed? Uh, well, nothing, um, uh, nothing is um, fixed yet. The, I think the most important thing for the audience is that um, the main spirit of the project, like, having platforms that are open and that's um, for everyone and that publish certain data sets for everyone, that's something that I want to continue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side, uh, there um, will probably be some additional data sets or APIs or whatever uh, products, so to call, uh, that are that may, ha may have an SLA, for example, because if you use one of the APIs I provide as of today, they are free. If they get hammered too fast or DDoSed, they are down. Mm. And there is no SLA. You have to live with it. Mm -hmm. And having something um, specifically for large organizations or vendors that they can trust that, um, that has an SLA asset um, where you can report a false positive and you get um, a near-time or real-time answer, uh, that's uh, one of the priorities that I have on my list that I would like to, to, to do right. So... Uh, really, the the message that I would like to spread is um, it the the spirit that abuse.ch had in the past will stay hopefully um, having open platforms on and um, everyone can contribute and most of the data should be freely available as it is today. Let's let's switch topics a little bit, um, though not much. Uh, one of the um you know, a new project. So you've been doing abuse.ch for 15 years, but just uh, in the last couple of weeks, you launched another new initiative. And this one is called Yarafi. Um, tell us, Roman, a little bit about Yarafi and what the uh, idea behind that project is. Yeah, so it starts with Yara. And that's actually the thing uh, that the project is about. Uh, I think we will talk about Yara um, in, in a minute. Um, so yeah, I had, um, so what, what the, the idea of the project actually is, is having a central place where you can share Yara rules and also consume them, right? So you can contribute your own Yara rules um, and others can use them uh, in an automated uh, form. Uh, it also has a scan engine. So that means if you contribute a Yara signature, um, you get matching files uh, of, of file that, that matches your uh, signature. And that's um, currently around 100K samples per day that I process through Yarify, um, which is yeah quite a bit. And these files, maybe a few words about these files, uh, they're coming from, from all the projects I already have. So non-public and non-public projects, for example, URL House. As mm -hmm. soon as URL House fetches a payload from a potential malware, um, payload distribution site, the file will be sent to Yarify too. So if you um, are using the platform and deploy your uh, Yara rules there, you get um, yeah visibility on that. Uh, but I'm also sending unpacked samples to it, um, 
uh, I'm sending process dumps to it um, from Sandbox analysis and of, for example, um, also cobalt strikes drag beacons so you can easily hunt on the platform with your own Yara rules or with Yara rules that already exist that uh, actually catch cobalt strike beacons. Um, you can hunt for these fads and you can download them for free, of course. So this begs the uh, larger question, which is uh, Yara rules. What are Yara rules and how are they used? And Herdvoye, I'm going to, I'm going to turf that one to you. Um, for the folks in the audience who aren't familiar with or haven't used Yara rules before, can you just talk a little bit about this technology and how it, how it assists um, threat hunters? So that's uh, an acronym for yet another recursive algorithm, I guess. Uh, there's some other um, other ones uh, going around, but that is the, I would say, the official uh, explanation behind the name. So it's, it's basically a, a pattern matching engine that, that can uh, find on a file uh, different kinds of patterns from the simplest, simplest uh, uh, examples like strings to various uh, lengths of string to position in a file and so on and so on. So it's <clears throat> it's pretty um, advanced and it can find, uh, I would say, uh, very complex patterns. And that's making it a very good tool for threat hunters to detect new, still undiscovered, but also known threats. So I, I would classify YAR rules in those two different categories. So uh, some... And, and is that is that detection engine a, a standard like open source engine or yeah, is yeah. it... Yeah, YAR is open source. Yeah. So you, you, anybody, yeah. anybody can use it. So okay. uh, I, 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 would, I would classify YAR rules in those two uh, groups. So one are well-established YAR rules that can detect threats that are known and that are, I would say, uh, well-tested and uh, very uh, low, false, positive prone. And the other ones that you, I would say threat hunters use to detect some, uh, uh, I would say, novel threats or some uh, suspicious indicators that might be found on Goodware as well, but also on uh, some um, uh, new malware. So th these, these kind of uh, rules are let's say monitoring rules. So, so there are like early warning signs for something that might be uh, interesting to look at. Uh, and uh, platform like uh, Yara Refi is a good way to test those rules because there, there can be improved, developed on the platform. That it, that's what I see from, from my angle that that's how I would use uh, this new service. So, how do you create a, a Yara rule if you're, um, let's say, you're, you know, engaged in um, threat hunting within an organization, uh, or you're a, um, uh, you know, uh, threat analyst? You've discovered uh, a, a new uh, piece of malware or a new threat. Um, what's the process of creating the the rule uh, for that threat that other people can then can then use within their own environments? Uh, so, if you are just you know, uh, casting a wide net, you'll be looking for these suspicious indicators. So your rule will be uh, catching a lot of, uh, I, I would say, unwanted things. So you will need to, uh, yeah, th those those uh, matches will need to be filtered out by some other techniques to find what's really interesting and worth mm -hmm. looking into. But if you are um, like, uh, you know, you you want to thread some particular malware strain then you, you need to concentrate on things like how they are packed. You, you can you can write a YAR signature for their packer. Uh, you can, uh, I don't know, if, if it's ransomware, you can focus on the encryption routines that do decrypting or encrypt, uh, decrypting. Uh, or, uh, I mean, the, the easiest thing is if you can find some easy uh like low hanging fruit some strings that are uh, uh that can be seen on on those uh and that sample. are very distinctive right yeah that, that, yeah so potentially there could be multiple different rules for the same threat depending on how uh, a threat hunter wanted to um create the rule 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, ba based on the, uh, I would say, expert level of the uh, uh, Yara creator, I would say yeah. we, we will, you will see different quality rules going around. So some are like, uh, you, you see it's, it's being written by someone novice who's just starting or somebody who's very, very into reverse engineering and knows, you know, how to find those uh, very unique patterns that can uh, be uh, that are very unique and specific for uh, malware threats thereafter. And for the threat hunter and and Roman, you could probably take a swing at this or heard Voye, you both both more than qualified to answer this. For the threat hunter, at what stage do YAR rules come into play? And if you're looking into a particular incident, like when would you employ them? Yeah, I think there are many use cases for for Yara, right? I think they play an important role at um, um, finding new threats, as Harvey uh, just mentioned it, um, but also finding uh, classifying samples, like you get a, a sample and you don't know what it is, and using Yara, uh, you can um, put a label on it. So like identifying the known bad, uh, but also, I mean, what, what you can do and what I have, I have seen is um, depending on what kind of, for example, EDR system you have in place, you can also use it on endpoints, right, to detect certain stuff. So if you have an incident and you're doing incident response um, at an organization and uh, you have a tooling in place, like, as I said, an EDR uh, that supports Yara and you're looking for a specific um, kind of um, threat, yeah, you can do, write your your own RIAR rules or use open um, publicly available ones um, to yeah roll those out across clients and identifying stuff. And I think that's the cool thing with Yara when you talk about um, old school antivirus software. If I I can use that uh, term, um, it was pretty hard to instrument. Um, um, the antivirus software to yeah spot something that you want to have detected so usually that was on a file name or on a file hash and with yara you now now have the possibility to do much more powerful things right and you just need this specific piece of software during an incident response um for example incident response uh, process to to spot stuff so there is a, a large variety of use cases for yara and that's that's um I think the reason for that is because uh, that it's open source. That's pretty cool. Everyone who has certain knowledge can write uh, YAR rules, and um, it's very powerful. I, I just wanted to mention one uh, interesting use case for YAR. I uh, actually don't see that frequently, but it's interesting, so I'll mention it. It, it can also be a DLP rule. So if you hook it up on your outgoing uh, data stream, and look for some specific indicators uh, on documents you, you internally use. I don't know, like images or uh, some strings from, and I don't know, headers or footers. You can easily detect some of those files going out of your company. So that's uh, something that not a lot of folks are doing, but it's actually a pretty neat way to detect if somebody is like, sharing what they shouldn't have or somebody stealing what they shouldn't have. <laughs> so you mentioned, I mean, this is an open source initiative and so it's decentralized. Folks can create their own YAR rules and, and publish them on you know, GitHub or keep them private. Um, how historically have, but there's value in sharing these obviously within the community to help each other um, with threat hunting. How historically have folks found uh, YARA rules that they might that might be useful to them. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm using YARA pretty often, uh, probably as m like most of the threat hunters. Um, and the, the issue when dealing with YARA rules is you have your own YARA set, right? Uh, but then there are um, many open source YARA rule uh, set, like the one from Reversing Labs, but there are many others. And then you have Slack channels where YARA rules are getting shared. Um, they, all these YARA rules then have different classifications, like some of them may be not for public, um, some may be for public. So it's a little bit a mess, right? Because mm -hmm. you have to, you want to hunt for a threat, but before you hunt for a threat, you need to hunt for the YARA rules. <laughs> to hunt for the threat, and, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's uh, challenging. And that was something that, yeah, uh, was consuming a lot of my time. 
and I thought, hey, we need a central place where um, yeah, Yara rules can be shared. And um, that's one of the purpose of Yarify. Uh, that you can share your rules no matter how good or bad they are that's an important thing so you can upload a pretty shitty rule i may delete it then uh, but you can up upload everything you want actually uh, it doesn't say anything about the quality but at least uh, there is a central place right where you can pull down uh, your rules and share your rules uh, that's uh, one thing and the second thing is i mentioned that with the classification of a yar rule right and there are some yar rules that are um that are uh, classified as, for example, TLP Amber, which means, well, you can only use it within your organization. And if you talk to the YAR rule creator, he says, well, the, the metadata of the YAR rule, like, okay, this YAR rule matches Gozi, for example, that's not classified. What is classified is the, the rule itself, like the, the, the patterns. And um, Using the, the current infrastructure, the, the current sharing mechanisms that are in place um, was tricky because it doesn't differentiate uh, between what is the YAR rule, what is inside the, the metadata, like who created it, uh, the, the YAR rule, uh, um, what is the name of YAR rule, exactly you see it here. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, that was one of the issues and one of the issues I wanted to address, right? So for, to give me just one example, with YARIFI, you can now say, the YAR rule itself, like the, the patterns, uh, they are classified, so the rule is not being shared, but you can still actually um, hunt with that rule on Yarify, and that, that's pretty cool. So um, you see, so in this case, uh, that's a perfect uh, example, you see the rule matching TLP, which is white, which means that everyone sees matching uh, files that, matching, that are matching this specific um, Yara rule. And you also have the, the creator of the Yara rule also have the possibility to define the rule sharing TLP. And in this case, it's all TLP wide, which means that not only files that are matching this particular Yara rules uh, will be visible to anyone, but also sharing the Yara rule itself. And if you scroll a little bit down in the, that example, uh, you will see um, exactly that. You will see the Yara rule. So we have first the metadata, and that's what's uh, publicly available. And then uh, the strings and conditions, that's the pattern matching stuff. And at the end, you see what kind of files on the RFI actually match that particular rule. So long story short, um, it should be one place where people can share um, in a structured way your Yara rules with others, but giving them full control um, what they want to share and how um, this Yara rule can be used. So I want to give you another example. There's a Yara Hub license, which is the creative, um, which, where I use the Creative Commons um, license. And uh, so that particular uh, rule is, for example, uh, uh, for, yeah, now you get uh, <laughs> some ads. Um, so uh, Creative Commons um, 4.0by, and that actually instructs the user of the Yara rule what um they can do with the yar rule right so in this particular case it's um you can use the yar rule but you need to give appropriate credits to the author right mm -hmm. and i think that 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 should encourage people to share more yar rules because they have a more complex but a more structured fine granular way um to define how someone can use a yar rule right so what um, what has been the response so far, um, Roman, to Yarofi? Uh, are you seeing uh, uptake by the community? And and uh, I mean, it seems like an incredibly valuable project. This seems like almost like the type of thing you'd expect, like a miter or something like that, to to organize and manage. But you're doing it yourself. Yeah. So I I, I really think that um, the most difficult part is teaching authors of YAR rules uh, that certain field in the meta header of a YAR rule needs to pre present, needs to be present to share a YAR rule, mm -hmm, like the mm -hmm. TLP classification or the license. So that's um, on, only that allows you to share YAR rules in a structured way, right? And I think that's um, still something where I need to, or I should influence some people to um, get used to that, to use really that structured way for sharing stuff. Because at the beginning, you have more um, work, of course, because you need to 
classify your rule and define all these fields, but it makes afterwards the sharing much easier, right? Uh, for everyone. And um, so um, the feedback I got so far is that many people were um, uh, pretty um, impressed about the idea, but yeah, getting used to it, writing your rules and publishing them there, that's I think another chapter and it will take um, another few months to motivate people to actually do that. Um, but I, th I think as soon as they see the need or the benefit actually that they get uh, from that, um, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an issue. I know, and heard voya go ahead, yeah. No, no, I, I just wanted to, to compliment Roman on educating the community how to uh, make the proper <laughs> Never meta header. <laughs> meta header, thank you. Is there more to be done? I mean, I know one of the issues you raise is even just like lack of standardization around like around nomenclature and how how we name our rules, you know, relative to the threat that they're that they identify. I mean, is there more work to be done with that? And is there a role for you know standard setting organizations, whether it's NIST or you know the equivalent in the EU, to get involved in that type of um, work? That's a good question. Um... Well, I think, or I hope that uh, Yarify is one step into the right direction. But if if um, some startup standardization organizations will come up with a standard, that would be, of course, much appreciate, appreciated. Because I, I really think that this is an issue with Yara because it's open and you can write whatever you want. It's difficult to do something structured with it. And uh, to give you one example, I mean, if you have... A, a certain threat that you detect with a YAR rule, you probably use that threat name as um, the rule name, uh, but then maybe a different AV vendor or a different security researcher will have another term or another naming scheme Name for that, for that particular malware, threat. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's so at, at the end, you have different YAR rules actually trying to catch the same thing, but they all call it yeah, they all have their own naming scheme and, and names, and that's that's an issue. And for example, how how Yara Yarify uh, wants to overcome that issue is, we stick to um, we, I try to stick to Malpedia um, malware family notation, right? Okay. So yeah. um, uh, malware family is there; it's um, documented there, and it has one single name and hundred different aliases. That's okay, but one name, and we try to stick to that. Uh, so if you write a YAR rule, um, you should yeah, add, add the Malpedia name right to that particular YAR rule. And that makes it easier then to um, process the YAR rules because you see, ah, okay, that's matching, that it should, that the YAR rule should match this file hash. And that's actually the malware, the Malpedia malware family that it should uh, catch, right? This is an issue with malware naming that goes back decades, and we've tried it, on numerous occasions. That, that issue is older than I am in the security community, am, yeah. right? So, <laughs> but we have another issue that we haven't solved yet. Yeah. <laughs> also, not your fault, Roman. Um, so, uh, f f final question uh, for folks out there who. Uh, are watching, maybe haven't used uh, Yara rules before, or new to this, um, where's a good place where they can go and learn both about, you know, how to engage with that community, find Yara rules, and, and also use them in their threat hunting? Uh, any recommendations on that? There are many rules, and usually it's learning by doing, so having a look at how others are doing it. Mm -hmm. But there is... I think there are plenty of documentation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, any, anybody I'm can. Not sure who, who, who I should. A anyone can here. install Yara locally and play with it. So that that would be probably mm -hmm. the best start to learn about the syntax. To learn about, I mean, there are some online guides that can get you started, quick started, and play with mm -hmm. Yara locally. So, and then there's Yara Yarafi. Thanks. <laughs> the go-to, the go-to resource. Hey, thank you both so much. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or anything you all wanted to say that, that I didn't give you a chance to say? I have a question for Roman. So, I mean, oh, you, you've, you've been... Final I question. Mean, you, you are quite a, you know, uh, public figure with, with this WCH. So, I, I, I'm always wondering, has that gotten you in any troubles with the dark side? In the past, yes, but that's years ago. That's when I started the project. And I think that 
that's also a situation that changed pretty much in the past, right? Um, when I started with cybersecurity, as I mentioned, cyber wasn't that sexy thing and nobody cared about cybersecurity. And when you then had very few cybersecurity experts nagging at cyber criminals, yeah, they got upset, of course. But these days, the situation is completely different. You have so many talented folks, so many um, cybersecurity experts who are nagging, um, nagging cyber criminals every day, like CryptoLamus, for example, um, then, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty hard to for cyber criminals to go after all the security researchers. Um, so the attack surface 15 years ago was much smaller because you only had very few cybersecurity experts. But these days, it's crowds. You had a, the crowd, had a bigger, bigger target on your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot more... A lot more bodies on the on the battlefield, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Glad, glad yeah, to hear sides. that, and glad to, yeah. to know there are no SWAT teams in in Switzerland. <laughs> no SWATing. No, yeah, yeah no SWATing in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. Lucky um, me. Uh, is that an American only? Is that only in the U.S. that that stuff happens, or or? Uh, well, I, I I don't know if anybody if anywhere. When anywhere else they would, you know, pop up on your door uh, on phone call. With, it would probably yeah. not be that <laughs> easy. With an assault weapon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> probably not go that and body armor. Yeah. yeah. When, when, when they knocked on my door, they were pretty friendly. So we were like, <laughs> okay, what are you doing while well, I'm sleeping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, um, Roman Husi, Herbele uh, Samardzik, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on Conversing Labs. And uh, Roman, we'll have to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. Happy to participate. And thanks for the opportunity. Our pleasure. Great to have you.